Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. The city sits at the west end of the bay, looking out over its deep harbor toward the rising sun. Ringed around with mountains, it nestles between smaller hills. A theater was built into one of those hills, one of the largest in Africa. From the upper seats, you can look out across the city to the Basilica Church of St. Stephen, where the famous bishop works diligently on great works of holy scholarship. The city is a proud one, not as large or important, perhaps, as Carthage, but just as ancient and with an important role to play in the life of the empire. The forum with its colonnades on three sides and fine statues are all the evidence you need to confirm this. Or the great walls, raised hundreds of years ago against the barbarians of the desert. Or the great villas in the hills and fields beyond, where grain, grapes, dates, and olives are grown in vast quantities to be brought down here to the harbor and shipped onward to feed the empire. Hippo Regius is a proud city, a colorful city, a rich city. At least it was before. These barbarians were unlike the ones that came before. They seemed to know something about the taking of cities, and there were so many of them. They came out of the west, and all that could be seen in that direction now was smoke of the towns and villages they had pillaged as they approached. Hippo Regius was not cut off, for there was still the harbor, but any attempt to leave by land would lead to inevitable capture and probably slavery, or worse. The bishop had stayed behind, unlike many of his colleagues in other towns, and had chosen to share the burdens of the siege with his flock. They had already respected him, and now they loved him even more. He was quite elderly, though, and it was rumored that he was dying. The atmosphere in the city was becoming tense. Food was expensive, and everyone who could leave had left. The siege, as sieges do, soon settled into a kind of bored anxiety, or any kind of change, for good or ill, would have been welcomed. This is episode 10, King of Africa. Directing the siege, occasionally to be seen by the sentries on the walls, was the Vandal's king, called Geyseric. He was most often seen riding on horseback, but everyone knew that he walked with a pronounced limp from an injury in his youth. Now 40 years old, he could be easily picked out, even at a distance, by the air of authority that surrounded him, and the hardness of his character was clearly visible in his face. Geyseric had brought his people across the whole western expanse of Roman Africa, the legions and garrisons of four provinces unable to stop him. The rumor in Hippo was that the governor had invited him and his army to assist him in his machinations against the powers in Italy, but whether that was true or not, they were clearly out of his control now. The idea that the Vandals had been invited by the Count of Africa, whose name was Bonifacius, is now generally regarded as unlikely. We'll get to him and his convoluted relationship with Ravenna, and especially with Aetius, in good time, but first I want to talk about Geyseric, because the story of his life will tell the story of the Vandals. Their transformation from one of many tribes into the first barbarian kingdom in the West is due in large part to the canny leadership and hard-nosed diplomacy of this one man. So, where did he come from? Geyseric, and you'll also see it spelled Genseric, same guy, 
was born somewhere in the Hasding Vandal lands in what's now Western Hungary, around 390. He was the illegitimate son of the Hasding king, Gada Gisel, and a slave woman, who may have been a Roman captive, but his obvious talents quickly overshadowed the circumstances of his birth. I cannot say anything at all about his early life or upbringing, except that he would have been about ten years old when the Vandals started their great migration into and across the Roman Empire. Through that time, Gaiseric would have presumably been in the retinue of his royal father, but the hardships of the road could not fail to leave their mark on his developing character. Last time I mentioned the battle in 406 between the Vandals and the Franks, where Godegisel was killed, at which point Gaiseric would have been about 16. His older brother Gunderic took over leadership of the Vandals and led the invasion into Gaul, and from there into Spain. The situation in Spain was chaotic and confused. Revolts nested within each other like Russian dolls, meaning legitimate Roman authority was hard to come by. Constantine III, I hope you remember, had used the collapse of the Rhine frontier to abandon his post in Britain and sail to Gaul to restore order. His troops had hailed him Augustus on the way, and it was clear from his actions that securing that position took top bill over the barbarian invasion. Not that he didn't fight barbarians. It was just that when the choice was between fighting barbarians and securing centers of imperial power, it was easy to know which way Constantine would turn. Constantine had sent his son, Constance, and one of his generals, Gerontius, to extend his control to Hispania. Once they were in country, though, Constance's troops made little effort to secure the passes through the Pyrenees, and the Vandals and Alans pushed through, away from Gaul, which was becoming too hot, and into the pleasanter, previously unmolested arms of Hispania. The situation in Spain was made even worse when Constance returned to Gaul in 410, and Gerontius the general, yep, you guessed it, set up a rival emperor. In this case, it was a local aristocrat named Maximus. Not Maximus Desmus Meridius, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, who will have his vengeance in this life or the next. Just Maximus. Gerontius then allied himself with the Vandals, and so on, to defend himself against his former master. The combined rebel, vandal, alan, suave army successfully fought off the army Constance sent to put down the revolt, and then Gerontius counter-countered attack back into Gaul with his army and left no one minding the store. The barbarians spent 410 and 411 ransacking the whole peninsula, and inevitably famine, plague, and dislocation followed in their wake. The devastation was enormous, and it was becoming clear that the vandals had painted themselves into a corner. There was nothing left to plunder. Without stable homes where they could grow and trade for their livelihoods, the vandals and their allies would eventually starve, either in place or on the move. This was a basic fact that all the peoples of the migration period faced. They'd spent ten years on the move, and it had to end. Gunderic, though he was leader of only part of the coalition, would have had some say in the agreement that was eventually reached with Gerontius. And based on his later prowess in negotiations, it seems likely to me that 21-year-old Gaiseric would have been at least well-informed about the goings-on. The agreement should sound familiar. In return for peace and an agreement to defend the Spanish provinces as federati, the barbarians would receive the right to settle in four of the five Spanish provinces. Each constituent group of the great host would take a separate area. Ten years together had apparently not been enough to create a new shared identity. The Alans, who probably were the plurality, got Lusitania and Carthaginensis. 
The Siling Vandals took Baetica, which basically conforms to modern Andalusia, and the Hasding Vandals and Suaves split Galicia between them, which includes the modern region of Galicia, plus parts of Portugal, Asturias, and Leon. The fortresses and towns of the region were ordered to open up their gates and receive garrisons. They would now be defended by the men they had been defended against just months earlier. The families were probably not given land of their own to farm, but were billeted on the residents and paid a fraction of the province's revenues for their upkeep. This was pretty standard procedure for Federate troops. It also explains why, even though there were probably at least 100,000 men, women, and children thus settled, there's no clear archaeological trace of their presence. They were there as guests, and had no time to put down the kind of roots that would be visible to us later. Because it turned out that Gerontius had sold the Vandals a pig in a poke. That's unfair. He was probably negotiating in good faith-ish, but he had wildly overestimated his chances of holding on to his position. He was also distracted. He was still at war. He had caught up with and killed Constans in Gaul and moved on to bottle up Constantine III at Arles, but when his troops heard that Honorius's new competent man Constantius was approaching, they all abandoned Gerontius and renewed their vows of loyalty to Ravenna. Constantius, you may remember, is played by Michael Gambon, and is not too far off from becoming co-emperor of the West. And if you do remember all of that, then you probably deserve some kind of certificate or something. If not, well, there it all was again. You may also remember, or not, that the year we're talking about here is 411, and that was the year after Alaric had sacked Rome. You may also remember that after that, Honorius made peace with Atolf and sent him into Gaul to help deal with the several Caesars too many that had sprung up there. Before they were able to cross the Alps, though, Gerontius was attacked and killed by his own men, apparently just for being a jerk. His puppet emperor Maximus escaped and set up a sad little court for himself in the Spanish mountains, but he was no real threat to anyone there. With the elimination of Gerontius, Constantius moved to reassert Roman control over Spain. He was approached by the Vandals about reconfirming the foetus they had made with Gerontius, but Constantius wasn't interested. His motivations for rejecting them aren't known. It may have been that he already had pet barbarian armies in the form of the Visigoths, and he didn't feel the need to overcomplicate things by allying with their rivals. It may have been that the local Spanish nobility pressured him to expel these people, who had done so much damage in so little time. Or it could have been they were simply too expensive. Given the state of the empire's finances at that point, that seems like a perfectly reasonable guess, and it could have been some combination of all three. He put his Visigoths to work, as we know, helping remove the Vandals and their allies from the picture, and possibly more importantly, from the payroll. Meanwhile, the Triple Alliance was fragmenting. It had always been a fairly loose arrangement, with splinter groups going away to pursue their own agendas and coming back, or not. One chieftain of the Alans called Goar is noted as having made a separate peace with the Romans all the way back in Gaul. But now the Suevi en masse separated from the coalition and made their own arrangements. Smaller groups of Alans and Vandals did the same, or set off on their own, which was probably suicidal, but people don't always make great decisions under pressure. The inverse was also true, as some splinter groups of Goths, unhappy with their kings Wallia or Theodoric for whatever reason, joined the remaining Vandals and Alans. There was also, as ever, the influx of disaffected peasants and escaped slaves that made their way into the barbarian bands as well. The Vandals and Alans that remained, though, were becoming more tightly bound together, as reflected by King Gunderic's assumption of the title King of the Vandals and Alans. 
Exactly when or how that was proclaimed isn't recorded, but it was probably sometime after 418, since continuous military setbacks against the combined Roman and Visigothic forces was eliminating tribal leaders. The Silings in Baetica were almost destroyed by then, and the Alans had lost their latest king and were under severe pressure. Gundric's consolidation was probably a recognition of wartime necessity. Like the Goth, the Vandals and Alan partnership was recognizing the need for a unified military structure under a single commander, a king. This new kingship was analogous to the transformation the Visigoths had undergone a decade earlier under Alaric. The pressures of constant migration and perpetual war was changing the diffuse tribes into unified armies. I'm not going to call them nations yet, but they're on the way. Armies need generals, and the Romans had shown that a general to be truly affected needed imperium, power over life and death and unquestionable authority. Combined with the tribal chief's role of religious leader and arbiter of disputes, the foundations of medieval kingship were being laid, and would find their first real expression under Gaiseric. At about the same time that Gunderic assumed the dual throne, the name Hasding began to be used for his royal dynasty, rather than for the whole tribe. In 418, the Vandals and Alans were apparently sufficiently humbled that Constantius felt comfortable withdrawing the Visigoths from Spain and gifting them the lands in Aquitaine around Toulouse and Bordeaux that we talked about in episode 5. Estimates place the total number remaining to Gunderic between 70 and 80,000 people, which would be an effective military strength of 15 to 20,000. I've been thinking that I need to give some time to the numbers of people we're talking about, because between the sources and modern scholarship, it's all over the shop. But I'll save that for a later episode. Just know that it's coming. Point being, while an army of 15,000 is certainly not nothing, Constantius clearly felt confident that local forces could handle Gunderic from 418 onward. In the initial confusion after the Visigoths withdrew, conflict broke out between Gunderic's force and the Suevi settled in the northwest. We don't know who started it or why. Maybe someone was settling some old score, or the Suevi had been egged on by Roman influence. Either way, the two groups, which had been marching together for 18 years by that point, met in a pitched battle. The Suevi were defeated and forced back into the mountains of Asturias. The sources tell us this was the first pitched open field battle the Vandals had won in their whole time on the move. And I'm going to pause for a second to let that sink in. In all this time, nearly two decades, ranging across the whole width and breadth of Western Europe, the Vandals had not until now won a battle where two armies lined up and faced each other. Yet they still had penetrated into the very heart of the Roman world arguably further than the Visigoths had since the Julian passes into Italy make it more vulnerable to attack than Spain. That fact right there, that a force could push that far without winning a set-piece battle, really should drive home the weakness of the Western Empire at this moment of history. After the defeat of the Suevi, there seems to have been two or three years of relative peace in Spain. Gunderic's moment of glory didn't last long, though. Pressure from Rome and simple logistical necessity drove the Vandals back into Baetica, where they were besieged themselves. They seemed on the edge of destruction, but in 422 the new governor, his name was Castinus, but that won't be on the test, pushed for battle against his desperate enemy rather than simply letting them starve. Any military commanders out there listening, one of the strongest lessons of history is this, never let your ego get in the way of a slam dunk. The Vandals defeated the Roman and Visigothic troops that they faced. 
the Visigoths supposedly betraying their commander in the course of the engagement. I've gotten into the habit, though, of rejecting most stories of barbarian treachery in mid-battle. It sounds like the kind of excuses you hear out of some soccer players after a tough loss. There is a story that the Vandals carried a Bible before them into battle, as kind of a standard, and it's not unreasonable to guess that if this is true, the victory may have strengthened the Vandals' commitment to their Aryan Christianity. Their success was significant enough that the Vandals bought themselves another six years in Roman Spain. They sacked Cordoba and Seville, and along the way commandeered some ships and raided the Balearic Islands. I assume they brought back a couple of DJs to improve morale. They did not try to hold on to the cities that they had sacked, since they sacked many of them more than once in this period. In between, they were living off the land. During one of those sacks of Seville, in 428, the chronicler Hydatius tells us that Gunderic, quote, laid his hands on a church, and by the will of God he was seized by a demon and died, end quote. Sometimes there's a description of an ancient person's death that can give us some idea of what he or she died from, but no such luck here. Hydatius is obviously making a point about God punishing the heretic barbarian for defiling the Orthodox Church, but if you really want to know how Gunderic died, Hydatius doesn't have anything for you, and so neither do I. Sorry. Gunderic was immediately succeeded by Geyseric. I feel like I've already gushed about Geyseric enough. So here's some more. There is a roster of classic enemies in Roman history. Hannibal of Carthage, Vercingetorix of the Gauls, Boudicca of the Iceni, Zenobia of Palmyra, Attila the Hun, and a few others. But that list is incomplete if it doesn't include Geyseric the Lame. His succession, as far as we can tell, was uncontested. Gunderic did have sons, but they were much too young to lead a warrior people under such conditions. At the time he stepped into his new position, Geyseric would have been in his late thirties, and most of his life had been spent in continual migration and war. He took the throne at a pivotal time in the lives of his people. Since entering Spain, the Vandals had spent twenty years in nearly constant conflict. Starvation was a constant threat, and stability within the Roman Empire would not be possible, while the Empire itself was embroiled in its persistent crises of leadership and succession. Spain would be played out soon as a viable homeland if it wasn't already. Returning home through Gaul wasn't possible. Geyseric, as a brand new ruler, made the decision to leave Spain and push across to Africa. Probably, it was his first major decision as king. It's easy to look at a map, see the narrow gap of Gibraltar at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, eight miles wide at its narrowest point, and think that couldn't have been much of an obstacle. But let us remember that Alaric and his Visigoths were defeated in their attempt to cross to Sicily, even though the Strait of Messina is only two miles wide. Strong currents in both places make the narrow water deceptively difficult to navigate, and the German tribes in general had not gained an enormous familiarity with seafaring. Most ships were not large. The kind of ships that would have been available to Geyseric would probably have been cargo and fishing vessels commandeered from the locals. Numbers from later naval operations tell us that ships could probably carry an average of around 70 passengers each. We'll get into the issue of population in a minute, but even a relatively small group would present obvious problems for a mass crossing. Supposing the crossing is then successful, there's the issue of supply. The country surrounding Carthage was one of the most productive provinces of the empire, but Mauritania, the land that faced Spain, was much poorer, 
much more arid and mountainous. The Vandals would not only have to make the crossing, but then navigate across 800 miles of hostile terrain to reach the promised land, which they would then have to fight for. The Vandals were by now a people accustomed to living on the move, but even so, it speaks to Geyseric's authority, and I have to assume charisma, that he was able to convince his nobility that such a crossing was in their best interest for long-term survival and success. He did have a few external factors working in his favor, whether he knew about them or not. I think he probably did know about most of them. And to explain them, I'm going to have to take a digression back into the murky depths of imperial politics. In 428, Marion Cotillar, I'm sorry, Gala Placidia, was effective ruler of the Western Empire as regent for her son, Valentinian III, who at the moment was about nine years old. Placidia, like any powerful ruler, male or female, had to rule through other powerful people. And in this moment, there were three of them, all generals. Flavius Felix, Bonifacius, and our old friend Flavius Aetius. Placidia, like Louis XIV or Lord Vetinari, played these three off of each other, so that their focus would be on each other, rather than mounting any threat to her power. Common tactic? Difficult to get just right. Felix was the commander-in-chief of the legions in Italy, the Magister Militum Presentalis. Aetius, you'll remember as hungry Michael Keaton, was Magister Militum Pergalius, the commander-in-chief of Gaul, and a man with an uncomfortably close relationship to the Huns. The third member of the triad was Bonifacius, who was Comes of Africa. Comes, in this sense, was the commander of the Comitatensis, the mobile field armies of the empire. Bonifacius had taken the title more or less on his own initiative, after he'd refused to work with Castinus on that ultimately doomed fight against the Vandals. After suffering one too many insults from the commander, Bonifacius had sailed to Africa and essentially declared himself in charge. The move was validated as a fait accompli after Honorius died, in recognition of Bonifacius's loyalty to little Valentinian. The triad began to fall apart in 427, when Felix suggested that Bonifacius was attempting to set himself up as a new emperor in Africa, and convinced Placidia to recall him to Ravenna and answer the accusation. Bonifacius was no fool and refused the summons, but the refusal, of course, was as good as a confession, as far as Felix was concerned, and he sent an Italian army to Africa. But Bonifacius was a perfectly competent commander and defeated Felix's army. That defeat discredited Felix, and Aetius, the sly fox, saw an opportunity. He had had a run of successes in Gaul, keeping the Visigoths in their box and defeating the Franks, and the combination of popularity for him and weakness for Felix could only mean one thing, promotion for Aetius. Aetius was made a partner of Felix, and then less than a year later, in 430, Felix and his wife were executed for plotting against Aetius. The tangled webs we weave. All of that meant that once again the court of Ravenna was distracted, and so Geyseric seized his moment and invaded Mauritania in 429. The story that I just told, by the way, is not universally accepted. It's not the one you'll find in Procopius's History of the Vandal War, for instance. Writing 150 years after the fact, Procopius ignores Felix entirely, and suggests that Bonifacius had contacted Gunderic to help him in his rivalry with Aetius, specifically to help defend him against the army sent when he'd refused to appear. 
St. Augustine, who has probably had the closest view of the matter, tells a different story. According to him, the Moors, meaning in this case the Berber tribes of the desert and Atlas Mountains, had taken advantage of the civil unrest to mount a large invasion of Roman territory, and both Felix and Bonifacius called in barbarians for support against them. But that source is secondary and vague, so those barbarians might have been the Vandals, or they might have been Gothic troops. There are at least two other versions of the story as well, but I won't continue to bore you. But the chances of a Roman invitation to Africa under any circumstance is unlikely, for one very obvious reason. If you were fighting a war in modern Tunisia, and called in reinforcements, why would you have them land in Morocco, at the furthest possible point from where you needed them? And why would you then wait for months as they fought their way across the continent to get to you, potentially losing strength the whole way? Doesn't make any sense at all. I am of the opinion, as a non-historian, that the decision was made by Guy Sarek, possibly in consultation with Gunderic before he died, and executed on his initiative. The chaos of the Roman rivalries contributed to the decision, but not directly. So, how many people are we cramming onto these boats, that can only carry 70 people each? Famously, in his writings on the invasion, the Bishop of Carthage, Victor Vitensis, tells us that Gaiseric undertook a census of his fighting men before setting out, and found that he had 80,000. That is far too many, if we are counting only fighting men. But, if you were Gaiseric, why would you only count fighters for an undertaking like this? Surely you need to organize boats for everybody. So the first obvious step is to count everybody. Most of the historians I read willingly will accept a total population of around 80,000 men, women, and children. Possibly Victor Vitensis simply confused his story, and it would be a fairly easy mistake to make. Generally, the rule of thumb is that in a population like the Vandals, there would be four or five non-combatants for every soldier, which gives a range between 13 and 16,000 as a fighting force, possibly as high as 20,000, since by this point, Gaiseric would be able to muster just about every able-bodied man of fighting age. Obviously, to transport 80,000 souls requires a lot of shipping. Presumably, it became the mission of Gaiseric's army for several weeks or months to range along the coast of Baetica and coerce, cajole, and threaten every crew of every vessel of sufficient size to take part in the operation. To make the crossing in one go would have required over a thousand vessels. Years later, when planning an invasion of Vandal Africa, um, spoilers, both the Eastern and Western Empire would have to scour the whole Mediterranean to assemble a thousand ships, so the Vandals' crossing must have been a smaller affair, with many trips made back and forth to ferry the whole mass. All of the people waiting would have had to concentrate in a few places in order to embark, which meant they would have to be fed. Once landed, they would have to be organized and spread out, likewise so that they could be fed. It was a logistical challenge, akin to the one presented by the Goths crossing the Danube, and remember, that project had had the infrastructure of the Roman Empire behind it and was still a nightmare. That Gaiseric was able to make this crossing happen suggests to me both that it had been in the works for some time, and that Gaiseric was a very capable organizer of men. There is unfortunately no narrative of the crossing that survives, but failure would certainly have been recorded, so the whole thing presumably went relatively smoothly. Once on the African side of the strait, the Vandals, and Alans, let's not forget them, broke into several columns and began to make their way eastward. We can assume that they were following the Roman road system, and so we can guess at the routes they took. A fascinating document called the Pudinger Tabula survives from the 13th century, and it may be a copy of a Roman original. 
It is, simply put, a roadmap of most of Europe and some of Asia, although we might call it more of a schematic today. I will, of course, provide a link. It shows that the Vandals would have had at least half a dozen possible routes open to them as they moved along the North African coast. That their landing could have been uncontested seems incredible, but that seems to have been the case. The African provinces, like everywhere else, suffered from a manpower shortage, and Mauritania Tingitana, the site of the landings, was both relatively poor and relatively distant from the home bases of the mobile field armies. Its garrison troops probably just hunkered down behind their walls and hoped the invaders would move on. Move on they did, and modern estimates place their eastward movement at a rate of about four miles a day, which for such a large group is actually pretty snappy. Sources on the march are scant to non-existent, but there must have been small skirmishes and sieges along the way. It's probable that Geyseric hung on to some of the ships used in the crossing to shadow his columns and ease supply issues. Cities fell with startling ease. Many were unwalled, and all of North Africa suffered from the same dissatisfaction among the lower classes as the rest of the empire. On top of that, ongoing religious conflicts had weakened the unity of the whole area. North Africa had been a hotbed of Donatism, one of St. Augustine's perennial antagonists, as well as populist religious movements like, like the Circumcelliones, which weakened the cohesion of the whole community. And here is where I need to tease a later episode about heresy in the early church. This shall henceforth be known as the episode of many promises. Bonifacius held back his forces until the Vandals were approaching Hippo Regius. He met them in open battle near the city, but was driven back. Geyseric left enough men to seal off the city, while the rest of his forces continued their pillaging eastward. I have talked a lot about pillaging in these ten episodes. It becomes part of the background, but every once in a while it's worth pausing to really think about what it means. The vast majority of the victims of the barbarians were peasants. In the Roman context, coloni, tenant farmers who lived in villages on or near the gargantuan estates that they worked. These were not rich people, so when a vandal foraging party arrived, there was a very real possibility that the food and goods they took were the difference between survival and death. A few sacks of grain and amphora of olive oil loaded onto a horse, plus two dead chickens tucked into a German's belt, doesn't sound like much, but it very well might be the last stores these people had. With very little recourse. The owner of the estate almost certainly didn't live on it. He lived in the nearest city, or he might even live as far away as Carthage or Rome. The farm and these people were nothing other than a line and a ledger to him, and the starvation of a family translated only to a slight reduction in some faraway senator's income. He would eventually move to try and protect his investment, but that action would come far too late for the victims of the invasion. And all of this is just speaking in terms of material losses. It says nothing of the trauma suffered by the people who lived through it, many of whom were abused, women raped, some murdered. All of this kind of thing has been suffered by many people across most of history, of course. But I try very hard not to lose sight of the suffering of the individual in the broad and sometimes repetitive sweep of history. It can be far too easy to do that. Hippo Regius, where we started this episode, was a rich and important harbor on the coast of modern Algeria. The town of Anaba sits on the site today. If you bring it up on Google Earth, you can see the ruins of Hippo just south of the modern town, including very clearly the outline of the basilica. It's the rectangle with the semicircle at one end. The basilica church was the seat of St. Augustine, 
who was 76 years old at the time the city was invested, and would die before the siege was lifted. Augustine deserves his own episode, too, and probably will get one. For now, I'll just note that at no time did he ever consider leaving his post. He urged other bishops to stay in their cities and minister to their flocks as well. It seems that few did. The port of Hippo was never blockaded. He could have easily left at any time, which only adds to my respect for the man. Hippo withstood the siege for 14 months. The Vandals could not bring enough men to bear on it at any one time because their supply chain was dependent on their ability to live off the land, and in July of 431 they abandoned the siege. The condition of the country by then was described by the Bishop of Carthage, not Victor this time, this one's called Capriolus, who had to explain his compatriot's absence from a synod in Ephesus. Quote, Travel is impeded by the excessive multitude of enemies and the huge devastation of the provinces everywhere, which presents one place where all the inhabitants have been killed, another where they have been driven to flight, and a wretched vista of destruction spreading out far and wide and in every direction. Rome finally heaved itself into action. In 432, western and eastern forces converged on the beleaguered African provinces. The eastern troops were led by Aspar, the part Alan general that I introduced in episode 8, where he was played by Eric Bana. Oh, by the way, for Guy Seric, I'm picturing Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones. Anyway, Aspar and Bonifacius attempted to decide the war in a single-pitched battle outside the walls of Carthage, but they were again defeated by Gaiseric's generalship and light cavalry. After the defeat, politics intervened again, and Bonifacius was forced to go to Italy to challenge Aetius's growing power. He met Aetius in battle and defeated him, but died of his wounds the same day. Aspar took his place at the head of the Roman government in Carthage. Not long after that engagement at Carthage, Gaiseric finally took Hippo and made it his capital. Some sources say it was sacked and razed, but both archaeology and common sense say that that is not the case. Why destroy a city you intend to use as your home base? The war dragged on for three more inconclusive years. Vandals robbed and enslaved the populace in the regions they controlled, and they were particularly harsh toward the orthodox clergy and local aristocrats, probably because those were the richest and most loyal supporters of the empire. Gaiseric had fought the Romans to a stalemate, and Ravenna was beginning to realize it. The Romans were clearly not strong enough to push the Vandal out of Africa, but for the time being the Vandals could not hope to take the linchpin that was Carthage. Meanwhile, Gaiseric was coming to the same conclusion. His civilian population was suffering almost as much deprivation as the locals, as material for plunder and forage was becoming scarce. Gaiseric needed to consolidate his win, make the land productive again, and strengthen his hold over the territories he had. To that end, Aspar and Gaisera concluded a treaty in February of 435. It stipulated that Carthage would remain untouched, part of the territory the Vandals had taken would pay tribute to the Romans, and the Vandals would live as federate troops in the areas they already occupied. The majority of them seemed to have settled in Numidia, along the coast near Hippo, close to the king. Aspar probably left soon after, as he was needed back in Constantinople to deal with the increasing threat of the Huns and the Persians. The demands on Roman federate troops in Africa had apparently become very lax, if the behavior of the Vandals after 435 is any indication. Gaiseric pressured Romans who joined his court to convert to Arianism, and banished those that refused and confiscated their property. In 438, they conducted seaborne raids on Sicily, 
They may have nominally been in the employ of the Roman Empire, but for all practical purposes they could do as they pleased. And Gaiseric had plans to cast off even the thin cloak of subservience that had been thrown over him, with the sudden and daring capture of Carthage in 439. The city fell on October 19th of that year, seemingly victim to vandal surprise and a garrison weakened by trouble elsewhere in the empire. It was sacked, and frankly I'll spare you another description of a sacking. It's predictably horrible. Again, Gaiseric targeted the church and nobility. All of the Orthodox Church's property was confiscated and all the priests banished. The churches themselves were closed, several then converted to Arian use. Most of the Roman nobility was expelled, which makes sense. Gaiseric would have no need for rich and powerful representatives of Rome in his new capital. It was a new era. After 40 years of migration, the Vandals had taken possession of one of the busiest ports in the Mediterranean. Two-thirds of Rome's grain originated in North Africa. I'll say that again. Two-thirds of the grain that fed Rome came from North Africa and now Gaiseric was the undisputed master of it. He had the mother of all bargaining chips. He also now had the wealth of the local nobility, shipyards, and sailors. At around this time, he changed his title. The king of the Vandals and Alans became simply the king of Africa. He had achieved what no barbarian, Celtic, German, Scythian, Arab, or any other, had a fully independent kingdom carved out of the Roman Empire's soft underbelly. The Vandals started a new calendar for themselves, with the fall of Carthage as year one. And in Ravenna and Constantinople, if you listened very carefully, you could hear the faint popping sound of powerful men's heads exploding. This episode has ended up being longer than I'd intended, so I'll get through the end of stuff as quickly as I can. Next week, we will return to the Hungarian plain, now that you know why there are Germans in Africa, and catch up with Attila and his court. It will be a little bit of a different form, but that's all I'll say for now. As always, please rate and review, if you can, wherever you can. Check out the Twitter, at Dark Ages Pod. I'm getting better at that. There is a Facebook page. Just search Dark Ages Podcast for that if you're interested. I'm less good at that, and Zuckerberg is always pointing out that I don't post enough. Last but not least, there is the Instagram account, also at Dark Ages Pod, where I post a relevant image or two, and sometimes an irrelevant one. Thank you all very much for listening. There's been a big bump in traffic between the last two episodes, and it's been really gratifying to see your interest. Without it, I would almost certainly have abandoned this whole project sometime around Thanksgiving. Okay, that's it for now. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.